It's great to be with you all. If you uh, have a copy of the scriptures, or it looks like on your sermon note page is the text for today. So first from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then from Daniel chapter 2. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, you who spoke by the prophets of old, who revealed yourself in Jesus Christ, who worked by your Spirit, to give us your infallible and errant word that we may know you. We pray that this morning that you would work by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we would hear what you would have us to hear, that you would take these words of mine and that you would press them into our hearts, that we would know you, that we would love you, that we would follow you in this world. We ask this for the honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, let me uh, begin with a question this morning. What do you aim your life at? What's your vision for the good life? We all have one. If your life was everything you wanted it to be, everything it was supposed to be, what would that look like? Try to picture it. In this same sermon, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, to seek first his kingdom. Paul in Colossians 3 tells us to seek the Lord, put our thoughts where Jesus is, where our life is hidden in him. And in the Lord's Prayer here, what we prayed just moments ago, what I just read, Jesus tells us to pray, Your kingdom come. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Three little words. Your kingdom come. This prayer is probably one of the most uh, famous parts of the Bible. Uh, We all just prayed it, so I know it's at least that familiar. You've probably heard it. 
whether you've been to a wedding, a funeral, in some kind of church context, you've probably prayed this, you've probably heard this many times, but do you realize what you're asking for when you pray your kingdom come? One of my favorite quotes from American author Annie Dillard, a little tongue-in-cheek, she writes this, uh, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning, It's madness to wear lady straw hats, velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. What's she getting at? We can come here. We can pray. We can sing. But we can fail to experience the, the explosive power of the gospel, the completely life-altering, reorienting that happens when the gospel, when the kingdom becomes the beat of our hearts rather than just familiar words that thoughtlessly flow out of our mouths. Do we understand what we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come? That's what we're talking about this morning. This prayer, I'm going to argue, it it cuts right to our hearts, right to the center of our lives, because in this prayer we see reality as God sees it, and we're also invited to both participate in the kingdom of God and protest against the kingdoms of this world. We are praying that God's good, just, kingly rule would come to the earth, We are praying that his kingdom would come in all of its fullness and that that would bring peace, healing, restoration to our broken, cursed world. As the Christmas hymn puts it, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So we're praying that, but we're also praying by implication what I read in Daniel chapter 2, that God's kingdom, this rock that was cut out by no human hands, that it would destroy, crush all other kingdoms that would stand against it, and that it would cover the whole earth. And as we begin to pray this, this ought to spill out into our lives, into action in our world. This prayer is meant to take shape as we live day in and day out in this world for the kingdom. So if you're an outline, note-taker kind of person, two points today— We're going to think about, first, the reality of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus calling us to pray for? And then second, what it means to pray for the kingdom. The reality of the kingdom, what it means to pray for the kingdom. So we could could say this. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God, simply. And in one sense, God reigns over all. Uh, Psalm 93, 97, 99 They all begin the same way. The Lord reigns. God reigns over his creation, over all that he has made. But the kingdom of God is also used in Scripture with reference to God's rule in hearts, in lives. And this is what Jesus is talking, what he is teaching us to pray when he calls us to pray, your kingdom come. 
That is, the reign of God, not by virtue of being the creator who sustains everything, but by virtue of redemption. So let me ask you, how do you, how do you think about your life and the various pieces of your life? I think our lives can often feel bifurcated. They can feel split up into all these different cubby holes. You might picture it. You know, you play certain roles at home, uh, in the workplace perhaps, with family, with church, perhaps at school, with friends, sports teams, whatever. Just multiply it out. But the reality of the kingdom comes in and cuts through all of these And it says that there is no relationship, there is no role, there is no place, there is nothing in your life that is just neutral. That is, that's just how it is. You are either loving the Lord, you are either seeking after his kingdom in all of those things, or you are seeking after another kingdom. There is a fundamental antithesis, an either-or. That our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, they flow out of love for God and his kingdom or love for another kingdom. The ancient church theologian Augustine wrote a book called The City of God where he talks about this very thing. And he shows that there are two kingdoms or two cities founded on radically different loves and headed in radically different directions. There is the kingdom of God or the city of God. It is ruled by God, and those in this city love the Lord. And then there is the city of man, or the kingdom of this world, that's ruled by Satan and founded upon, listen, the love of self. And this is reality as God sees it. And in the Bible, these kingdoms, they go back way back into the book of Genesis. You see, when you were created, when God created humanity, he made us to rule. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth. Verse 28, And then God said, Be fruitful and multiply, increase, fill the earth, subdue it. You see, the vision at the beginning of Genesis is fill up the earth. You are God's image bearers. You are meant to reflect his glory. You are meant to create culture, to explore, to figure things out. You are meant to bring God's good rule to the earth through your rule. And there is no higher dignifying of humanity than what we see in these opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. The future seemed bright, we could say, but then Genesis 3, we fell. We believed the serpent's lie. We believed that God was keeping something from us, that he wasn't actually our good father. And so, Humanity treasonously joined ranks with the serpent, and the rest of the story of the Bible and the rest of human history, I would argue, shows what has happened because of that. That our loves and our desires, no longer ordered by our love for God and his love for us, 
have become disordered and turned inward on ourselves. It's why in Genesis chapter 4, one brother named Cain murders his brother, Abel. And it's why Cain's uh, city that he establishes is one that Genesis 4 talks about. It's built on violence and oppression, increasingly getting worse. It's why in the Bible, even some of the best people have this problem. Think about David for a second. David, who in a moment of temptation, loved himself and the fulfillment of his own sexual desire more than God, which resulted in adultery and murder. You see, the picture that the Bible paints is rather than reflecting the image of God, humanity humanity has become beastly. Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, we become so obsessed and infatuated with our own power and glory and our own selves that we become like beasts. I mean, think about it for a second. What else explains your inability to control your own desires? What else explains that uncontrollable anger that you have when someone has threatened that thing that you love most? You see, we were meant to love God, and out of that love, love our neighbors and spread his kingdom over the whole earth. But what has happened is humanity, we become beastly, we become more serpent-like than God-like. So this is the problem. And in the Bible, this is why your problems and my problems can never be fixed by willpower. Think about that. Because your problem is bigger than that you do bad things sometimes, and you think bad things, and you want bad things. Your problem is that you love yourself. You don't need a new set of rules or methods. What you need is a heart transplant. You need what you love most, what you desire most, to be rightly ordered by the love of God, his love for you and your love for him. And that's why Christianity will always be fundamentally different, right, from every other philosophy, from every other ideology, from every other religion, because it says you don't need good advice, you need good news, You need someone to do for you what you fundamentally cannot do. And let me say this, friends, God loves you. He does, because way back in Genesis 3, in that first encounter with Adam and Eve, when they fell, he promised one who would deliver, one who would destroy the serpent, one who would bring restoration to what has been lost. And God has been pursuing humanity since. And in Jesus Christ, we see that steadfast love of God embodied in a person. And he comes onto the scene in Mark chapter 1 saying, The kingdom is near. Repent and believe in the good news. In the words of the Christmas hymn, O holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And this Savior, this King, he calls us to to come to him, to believe in him, and to be made new through him. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, 
part of the Narnia series. Uh, there's a character named Eustace, and he's a spoiled little boy, and he becomes so fixated with a dragon's treasure that he himself becomes dragonly. And Aslan the lion, who represents Christ in the story, he takes Eustace to this pool, and he tells him to undress and get in. And Eustace begins to peel at his skin, his dragon skin. But after all the scratching and the peeling and the pulling, he looks down and he's as dragonly like as ever. And then Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done the other three times. But there it was, lying on the ground, ever so much more knobbly-looking and gross than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, threw me into the water, and after that I turned into a boy. Lewis comments at the end of this story. He says, It would be fairly nice, fairly nearly true, to say that from that point on, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, but the cure had begun. Has the cure begun in you? As we look at these words, your kingdom come, the first thing we have to ask is, am I in that kingdom? Because by nature, you and I are opposed to this kingdom. We're under the dominion of sin and Satan, and we are stuck in our love of ourselves. But 1 John 4.10 says this, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Has that reality sunk in? Has the radiant, glorious, self-giving, self-sacrificing love of God torn through the dark dragon layers of your self-love? This is what it means to be a Christian and to be brought into the kingdom. But we must see that Jesus doesn't just forgive our sin, but he restores our humanity. He takes us from those who are beastly, dragonly, golem-like shadows of the glory we were meant to reflect, and he makes us new. Listen to these words from Revelation. Revelation 1.5, Jesus who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. This Jesus is being worshipped in heaven as we speak. Revelation 5 gives us the song, You purchase men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, it's not even just forgiving our sin, restoring us, But the bigger picture, the marvelous picture of the kingdom is the renewal of the earth, of the creation that God has made, which is where everything is going, Revelation 21 and 22. 
the city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down. Heaven on that last day coming down and establishing perfect peace and justice and righteousness here. That's the reality of the kingdom. So now, what does it look like to pray for that kingdom? I want us to think about this in two ways. As I said earlier, protest and participation. As we saw in Mark 1.15, as I read, with the coming of Jesus, this kingdom has entered our world. And right now, we're living in between the times. In between the time where that kingdom was started and when that kingdom will finally one day be consummated in all of its fullness. So this is a time of struggle and conflict. Which you look around our world and isn't that clear? So, what are we praying we are first protesting against all other kingdoms. And that may be easy to picture in some ways, like, like really far out there or with those that we may disagree with or something. Let, let, me, let me direct this at us first. Think of it this way. We are praying against all visions of the good life that do not have God at the center and are not founded upon the love of God in Christ. So, we are praying often against ourselves and our own desires to establish our own kingdoms that fit our goals, our agendas, our hopes, but at foundation level could really take God or leave him. When you think about your best life, what you long for, is it founded upon the love of God in Christ? If we're honest, if I'm honest, oftentimes I have to say no. No. What, what I want often does not have anything to do with God and Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But in saying yes to the kingdom of God, we're saying no to all other pretenders to the throne. Whether that be ourselves or others, institutions, political candidates, Anything or anyone that would vie for our ultimate hope. Second, in this petition we are led to, to participate in the kingdom. This ought to lead us to pray for the growth of the church, for the health of the church, to pray for your pastor, to pray for elders, for deacons, for fellow brothers and sisters, to pray for others that you know, who are not in this kingdom, that they would be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son, in whom there is redemption. This ought to lead us to pray for ourselves and others that we would abide in Christ and that we would be kept from the evil one. This ought to lead us to pray for the means of grace, for the word, for the sacraments, for our fellowship together. This ought to lead us to pray for missionaries and church planters and all those who strive to extend this kingdom here in this area and far off to the ends of the earth. And this ought to lead us to pray for Jesus to come back. Because we are directing and we are aiming our hearts and our lives at that reality and this kingdom. But do you see now how you, you can't do that and have it not affect every day. 
Like, if we're really aiming and directing our lives and we're saying, this is what I want, then it's going to affect how we live every day. So this prayer, as I mentioned earlier, it's meant to spill out into our lives, into action in our world. If we're really praying for kingdom advancement, then we have to support it with all that we are, with our resources, with our time, with our money, with, with everything that we have, with our very lives. And I'll say this, um, God is going to win and God is going to establish his kingdom and it is coming. But individual churches and people, you know, sometimes we get off track and churches can close and ministries can fold. Will we invest our lives, will we invest all that we have in this kingdom advancement so that we actually are a part of what the Lord is doing? This looks like Obviously, supporting your church, it looks like, let me say this one, loving others in your church and your community and seeking after justice. It looks like fighting sin in your own life. And it looks like being the kind of friend that other people can go to for help. Do you see now why I began with the Annie Dillard quote? Because this, this, is, the most, like, this is one of the most radical things you could ask God for. Imagine what would happen in your life if the kingdom of God began to redirect your goals, your loves, your hopes, and your dreams. And as I said earlier, if we're honest, you and I often do the opposite. We live in a way that protests against the kingdom of God and participates in the kingdom of darkness. And this is why we must repent and we must turn back and see reality again as it lies before us. We must see how beautiful and glorious our king is and how false and destructive are the kingdoms of this world. Here's a vivid picture, a vivid big picture. Uh, French philosopher uh, Jacques Ellul, writing about the city of man, says this. See if this does not describe our world. Man tries to put his cities back into business, rebuilding them on his human sacrifices. On the working class of the capitalist world, on the forced labor of the Soviet world, on the black slaves of the colonial world, all untiringly dying a dog's death to provide a foundation for the magnificent city. Man sacrifices man to build his cities instead of accepting the only sacrifice which would enable him to found them in truth and purify them of Satan's presence. I am sadly aware that these words mean nothing to the world's ears. The means chosen by God has no meaning for man's projects, but it is the only means, and we must never stop saying this. You see, at the root, at the foundation of every other kingdom is you die so that I can have what I want. And friends, this is what is destroying our world. It's at the root of the radical racial division, ethnic division, violence in our world, all across the world that says, my tribe, my people win, and I will kill you if I have to. It's at the root of our dying marriages and families that say, give me what I want or I'm out of here. But the kingdom of God is established by God in Christ dying for his enemies. And when that gets worked into your heart, 
When this abundant kingdom begins to radically reshape your life, you'll be able to pray with boldness, protesting against all other kingdoms, even against yourself sometimes, in your constant struggle to submit your will and your desire and your treasure to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian, writes this, For God establishes his kingdom through the cross, first of all by Jesus dying on it, and then by Jesus' disciples taking it up daily as his followers. Unlike the kings of this world, God establishes his kingdom through suffering, self-denial, and service. To pray for that kingdom means committing yourself to the way of the cross. Serve anyone else. Serve anything else, and you will be beastly. You will never be the awe-inspiring image of God that you were created to be. Participate in his kingdom. Give your life and your service to his kingdom, and you will know more and more of his glorious reign in your life. And when you look back, you will never regret one sacrifice, one ounce of energy, that you gave to your king and his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, who has poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word, grant that that light would be kindled in our hearts, that it would shine forth in our lives, that you would make us people of justice, people of love, of self-sacrificial love, people who pour out our lives as drink offerings because what else can we do when you, our God, has done that so abundantly for us? Change our hearts, change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.